on this episode of Fish's Call Sheet, I have, you know, multi-hyphenated, multi-skilled creative forces in our business. Uh, and so I'm welcoming a dear friend, Randall Winston, to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. You, you direct, you produce, you, I mean, you do a little bit of everything on the creative side. Yeah, you're very generous, but yes, I do. And, and I feel like that's part of constantly growing. You know, I mean, I, I, I came here and I was a PA and ran and got coffee and I've just tried to grow from there. I love when someone says, like you did, I started as a PA, I started running and going, getting people coffee. And now you're an executive producer who's directing and who's doing shows and guiding, you know, visions that really impact society as a whole. I think that we always hope that we can have some influence because it is so pervasive, you know, our, the business that we're in. And sometimes, you know, I'm happy that it's just entertainment and I'm not a heart surgeon. Not that I could have been. I'm just saying, you know, sometimes you can just say we're not saving lives. But I think under the umbrella of starting out at the bottom, you know, working working as a PA, trying to see what is needed, it's a great way to observe the business. You know, when I first got here, so many people used to say, oh, I fell into it, I fell into it. And it didn't make any sense to me because, but this is a business that encompasses almost every other trade or business. I mean, there's entertainment lawyers and entertainment doctors and, and as well as actors and directors and writers. And so getting in the nitty gritty or the bowels of the, of the business and seeing what is possible, what knowing what you don't want to do is as important as knowing what you want to do. And philosophically, like I say all the time, I'm still a PA. Like, you know, if, I, if I'm on set and I think there's something that needs doing, then I, I'm down for how to get that done. You know, not about trying to silo things up. You're one of the most fun people to work with. And I feel like having worked across this business for I don't know, 30 plus years, it makes me old. Uh, <laughs> It's amazing. You never lost that joy and that magic, and you bring that magic to every level. It's a great lesson, and it's a great reminder for me, like as somebody who wants to move forward and, and executive produce at one point, to watch you do it, but do it with a joy and a way of making your sets fun, and people are working and working hard. I would say that I, that is one of my favorite things about working in the business is, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a give and take, you know? I mean, and at any given time, there are a hundred and something people on set, right? I mean, and, and usually when you have visitors who are not in the business, people look and, and think, how in the world do all these people have something to do with making 22 minutes worth of entertainment? But what's great about that is that you can have no better set than when everybody thinks their job is the most important job. When you acknowledge that, and empower people to do their best work and contribute to the creative, then, then you get the, the best results. Some of the fun comes out of respect, you know, that we're, that we're building this together. I love that. I, you know, that's my spirit. You know, we kind of bonded over that mutual uh, love of collaboration. It's funny, you're a producer, and producer is this kind of nebulous title that, that is all-encompassing. Yeah. And it's it's so fascinating in our business because what a producer does from show to show can vary, I mean, just greatly right. and, and everything. But maybe for people at home, can you give kind of a rundown of maybe 
what a producer does and maybe give us some ideas of, of levels like associate versus maybe consulting and then executive? Absolutely. I, I, I usually say when we're going around the room, it's a, a cheap babysitter and bottle washer. But <laughs> I, I do think one of the things that's confusing in television in particular is that a lot of the producer titles are writer titles. And that happened as a, I think as a, a result of the writer strike in the, in the mid 80s. The fact is that now, you know, consulting producer is a writer. It's usually a writer who's not there day to day, but has a guiding hand or a helping hand in writing. Uh, supervising producers, you know, writers go from um, staff writer, story editor, usually sort of a supervising producer title. There's a producer title in there, executive producer, co-executive producer. All of those people often are and could be writers. Associate producer in television typically means the person who runs post. They go from post supervisor to associate producer. Sometimes they become producers, uh, depending on how complicated the post is on a show. You know, I was, a, I was an associate producer. Uh, and they also, co-producer is also a title that is dual. It can mean a writer or sometimes a post person. This isn't getting confusing at all, is it? <laughs> right, well, and that's the thing. But I do think it's really valuable because actually this is information people outside the business are like, well, I think I want to be a producer, but I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure which type, right? And, yeah. and this really helps to kind of open that umbrella up and, and explain it. So it's perfect. Well, I'll tell you the, the producer route that I went through. You know, I grew up in Post. What's great about that is Post is also an incredibly creative part of our business. You know, stories are made in Post, depending on what the show is. I mean, unscripted shows are completely built in Post, and sometimes a show can be saved or crafted, you know, uh, much more Post. And so you get to work with very talented editors. The writers all come through, the directors all come through, and so you get a sense of their vision, creatively how the show is put together. <laughs> if you also get a lot of what was done wrong. <laughs> in post, people are delight in saying how the director screwed it up or how it should have been done some different way. What's, what's missing what we wanted to add here, what we thought we were getting that we don't have now. <laughs> exactly. It says it right here on the page. I can't believe they didn't get that shot. Going back to the, the producer track, um, so I was an associate producer. That also taught me a lot of budgeting and organizational skills that were applicable to the overall production because post is a piece of the production happens at the end and the production you know is a is a is obviously the entire enterprise so i, I could understand and need a budget and so when i moved over to being a producer which is oftentimes uh called a line producer or um or, or it'll be the produced by credit on uh, on tv shows I'm a little, I don't know, I think I have something stuck in my craw about, about line producer, only because for me, I, I see this as such a collaborative business, and I don't think that that, that, that job ends at the line item of a, of a budget, but it is incredibly important that somebody is is doing that job and looking after the budget and reporting to the, uh, to the studio, how it's being put together. And from there, I, moved on to being a co-executive producer and executive producer. And that was really a function, I think, of trying to be more of a creative partner, you know, and that philosophy, I, you know, because I knew Post, I could, I could be in the edit room, but for 
deliver a cut uh, to to another writer or executive producer, to a writer or an executive producer, you know, then they thus shortening the amount of time that they had to to spend in there. And editorial is also a great vantage point for training as for directing because of what I just said before about you know what was missing and how the story is finished and completed. You see the script and you see the, the, what the final version is and what is possible. Oftentimes when you're on set, maybe there's two ways that a line could be interpreted or you know, maybe there's an extra joke that, uh, you know, that wasn't exactly on the page, but suddenly you see the magic that's happening on set and you just want to capture it so that there's another option. And the way that things play against each other. You'll see it in editorial, but you also, then you have to start recognizing it as a director. If someone were to play a particular part a little more rounded or a little more heightened than was anticipated, and then you shoot you know, the other character not in line with that, suddenly you have a scene that doesn't work. You know? So you really want to have that, that holistic uh, point of view. I got a little bit off the producer thing, but that was sort of my my road to it, and, and it's been uh, interesting and tricky and things to navigate. And, and but I do feel like I have a very nice vantage point of seeing, having seen the business from a lot of points of view, and that's helpful. And trying, and I'm trying to find more interesting stories and ways to bring them, bring them out. In the editorial side, you kind of fine tune all that, and you can change it. You know, you you mentioned unscripted television or reality television, as people kind of refer to it a lot of times, that's almost all designed after the fact in the editorial portion of everything. In what we do now, I think it's a really natural transition to be the director and to get all of those moments or to notice that, okay, this actor's playing this in a heightened form. If I can get this person to match or the two of them can grow this scene, then when you come to the end, you have something bigger to present or another option. Whereas someone who maybe didn't have that experience may just let the two sides kind of play somewhat disconnected, particularly, I would say, in a single camera setup. Yes, exactly. Because they don't always play right off of each other. Like the Connors, for example, or Roseanne is a multi-cam. So all those cameras are running at the same time. But in single cam, we do setups more like film where we do coverage. This is where a good executive and a, and a good director comes in is – to know what one portion played so that when you turn around to get the other side of it, you can heighten or match or, or get the ranges you need. Uh, absolutely. And, and again, as people always say, it, it starts on the page, uh, you know, under that umbrella of everybody thinking that their job is the most important. If all the creative hands have the mission to make it better, to, you know, to, to, to offer something to elevate, then you're in a good place. And oftentimes, you know, sometimes the important guiding hand is the one that says, that's a great idea, but that's not for today. Or, ooh, that's something great. You've inspired me. Maybe I'll make this other tweet, you know, to make it together. That's, that's the fun stuff. But you're exactly right. It's, it's uh, in single cam, because in, by nature, it's a little more disconnected. It's easy to have uh, different energies or different something that doesn't match exactly. The multicam is what's exciting is seeing it in rehearsal, you know, like that process of, oh, that joke's really working there or that joke 
could be better. Right. <laughs> and, and the cast really bringing that energy to the stage. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you've worked on a multitude of projects across pretty much every dynamic. It's one of the things, Reto, that I wanted to kind of pick your brain from the producer standpoint, especially because you're my first producer and I picked you because I feel like you have this all-encompassing knowledge because you did. I haven't done sports. I haven't done sports. Okay. So, okay. So we'll, we'll, uh, we'll hold, we'll hold that one against you. But from a creative standpoint, I mean, to, to understand the line portion of it, the budgeting portion of it, and I'm not a big fan of line, just like I'm not a fan of the term above and below the line, which are old terms that people used to use. Because yes. for me, I feel like we're all collaborative participants. Everybody should be trying to make their job the most important and the best they can do to make the project the most important and the best it can be. Absolutely. In your role now as an executive producer, what's the best part of your job? I go back to collaboration. I mean, that is when I am happiest, I think, when I feel like um, I'm able to work with the people around me and exchange ideas to try and elevate a moment or the project or, you know, there's, there's pre-production, there's production, there's post-production, but then there's still sort of X Factor stuff, right? Like sometimes, you know, they want the cast of the Connors on Family Feud. You know, or they want, you know, they want to come to set and do something. All those things are not equal, but some of them are really important because you know that either the fans will appreciate it or that it's going to get you, you know, some important exposure at the right time or that somebody's voice that's part of your team that hasn't been heard as much as maybe it should be, you know, like that person needs to have the opportunity to go out and be on Kimmel. Like, I, I, you know, there's a hundred different micro things, I think, that are part of the canon of having a show that, are, that you also want to serve. So now on the flip side, what's the hardest part of your job? Well, it's, maybe it's difficult, but I'm not sure that I don't enjoy it. I think it's communication by communication. I think I usually mean translation, you know. Like I said, there's 170 people onset and there's probably another hundred offset but there's a number of executives you know at the studio and at the network level and you have the showrunner who you work very closely with making sure that everybody uh, rowing in the same direction feeling like they were heard and and or understands the mission i think sometimes there's a there's the process of giving notes right so the writers write something and we, it's presented to Studio network and sometimes studio network, you know, like, eh, that's not working. This is working. You know, we, we think this could be better. And that could be an antagonistic process. It doesn't need to be, but like sometimes it helps to have someone who can sort of translate what the essence of the note is or what the wish is from the studio or network to the writers, you know, so that, I mean, writers are obviously used to executing that. Uh, those notes in, in varying degrees of grace. But I also feel like what that means to practical applications, like, you know, you know, well, the studio wants more of this. I don't think they're saying exactly that because we can't afford to do that, but maybe the essence of the note could be accomplished, you know, this way, or, the, you know, that we give the network what they want and it's something that we can do as a responsible production, you know, that, that kind of stuff. 
I think requires some creative thinking and collaboration and some translation. Which I think you're excellent at. You know, in my experience, you're an excellent communicator and an excellent translator because I'll speak from the writing standpoint. As a writer, you spend so much time crafting something, right? And you know, on the creative side, you spend so much time building something with a vision, especially if you have multiple things coming out over the course of a series, you have a vision going forward. So then when you get that note that says, hey, this needs to change or we'd like to see this different, you know, it can be a real push to your ego, but your vision. Yeah. And so you have to be the kind of writer, like I think, cause I grew up as an actor taking notes and in a business where everything changed so fast. Cause we were so rapidly evolving on our show. I'm not particularly sensitive about notes, but that's a hard thing for a lot of people. And sometimes you really have to fight for the thing that you feel is important. And there's a lot of great shows or shows that didn't make it. And the difference is that somebody fought for the right thing at the right time. But I think part of it is to knowing it shouldn't be a fight. It should be a collaborative thing where we're contributing yeah. ideas to get to the best point. And I think that's something you do really well. Thank you. Uh, you're uh, exactly right to be, to have that philosophical place as a writer. And, and I, know, I know you write a lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> quite a bit. Uh, but I think, write your passion. So I have a lot of passion. I love this business. I have a lot of things that I want to bring forward. And, and that's a great gift of an opportunity because I'm not limited by what I look like as an actor. And I like to write stories that aren't designed for me. And I think that expands my world. And I think at times having a little bit of access in this business to try and share stories where people previously may not have had the access, I think is important. And I think that's an opportunity. And then the important part is to make sure that you're including people and expanding your world and doing through inclusion, telling stories that really are authentic by knowing that you don't know everything. Yeah, I think that's huge. I mean, you know, that is a lot of the conversation around the diversity and inclusion for our business. It's interesting. It's an interesting little piece because having the experience and having an, an access point for the audience are, are tied, but haven't always been honored, right? Right. So a story about a black woman being told, you know, written by a white guy and doesn't have a, 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 any black woman in the room, I mean, it is a version of, a, of that story, but it doesn't include the voice it should be. And I think that's the, the thing that hopefully is happening more now because, you know, if you have executives that recognize that, which there needs to be more, if you have creative people that understand in the process of building the story, like, okay, that's not my experience, but your experience is, and your voice is valuable and important to that. And I trust that that is enough because our are the royal we, all of our experiences are diverse enough that enough people are going to identify with it. Right. That it is, is going to be a, a valuable way. Well, I think from a creative standpoint, you have to have people in the room who have had at least close to the experiences that you're trying to portray. If you want to be authentic, you have to have some people in that room who've had that experience. It's really hard. As a male, I can't have experienced everything 
that a female has experienced. I can't have experienced every part of it. And that's the beauty of a good writer's room or a good creative group is we shouldn't all come from the exact same backgrounds or have the same experiences because then we're missing part of the world. And, and then the flip side of that is to really find, and this is something I try to do in my writing, is find the places where at our core, most people have a lot of the same things that they're fighting for or that they want. And some things are somewhat universal experiences. You know, as a parent, we're both parents. Mm -hmm. You want to provide for your kids, but at the same time, you want to teach them to be independent. And then at the same time, you want to give them opportunities that you didn't have. And then yep. at the same time, you want to hold them accountable. So, and I think every parent in the world has experienced that. And that's the thing where you're like, did I do that right? Right. <laughs> and so Which I think it's good. Is the, is the other thing that all parents have felt. Did yeah. I do that right? Right. And, but to also, again, as a parent, one of the things you do as a parent that's really valuable is to turn to people you respect and say, what do you think about this? Or mm -hmm. have you, have you dealt with that? Cause somebody may give you brilliantly, it's usually simple, brilliantly crafted advice that you can't have cause you either haven't been there yet or cause you're thinking about it. Sometimes you're emotionally attached to it as well. And I think that helps to be, Emotional attachment helps in some cases, and in some cases it clouds judgment. And I think that's one of those things too is, same thing in a writer's room, sometimes I may want to hammer something so hard because it's something that really bothers me, right? But that doesn't do a justice to an audience mm -hmm. who may not be able to receive it that way. You can't hit them over the head with a hammer because then they're too busy worrying about why it hurts and what's wrong to go with right. you on the journey. And you know that's a fine line from a creative standpoint, I want to say this, but what I really need is I need an audience to experience this with this character. Yeah. Because saying it's not really the thing that is transformative. I think sharing visceral experiences is what's the imperative, right? That's the authentic part. I think everybody's been an underdog at some point. Everybody has felt like an outsider at some point. Now, not always in the same way, but to help people transform and see the world through this person's vision and share. That's the power of kind of what we get to do from a creative standpoint. And to me, it really matters that you have people in your group, people in your room who understand the depths and layers of that experience. Uh, so totally agree. how long have you been in the entertainment industry, Randall? Ooh, um, it's uh, goodness. I think it must be coming up on 30 years. I, I uh, 2019, yeah, I guess it's been about uh, 31 years. You know, when I came out originally, you know, looking, I, I was looking for an internship, worked on the, you know, snuck onto all the lots, and then <laughs> spread a paper them with my resume. My first internship was the fall of 88. It's about the same time. We started about the same time. Yeah, how about it? And it's interesting, the business has changed a lot through then. But one thing that hasn't changed is you have a tenacity about how you go about it. And you have to have that in this business. But in order to will something into existence, you have to be tenacious about it. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I, th I think it's, as I was touched on before, you know, it's a little tricky. It's about finding out what you don't want to do. You know, I mean, you want to try a lot of things. In general, I felt like when I got here, there were a lot of people that wanted to help, but they, they weren't going to jump into the fray unless I really knew what I wanted to ask. 
right. um, you know, and that was uh, finding finding a path, and you know, it seemed like it was going to take forever. And uh, I think it's important to know that you're learning from the minute that you step into the fray. My mother used to always say, you know, fish doesn't know it's in an aquarium until you take it out. Good ideas come from anywhere and everywhere. In those first few jobs, when you start to have your collection of experiences that you own, taking that to the next job and applying it so that you can say, oh, you know, this, uh, this happened at my last job. I, I have a solution. Now you've done two things. You've demonstrated that you are paying attention, that you have knowledge, and you've made someone else's job easier. And I think that's the way to take a step forward. For you, what was the moment? Was there something that happened, something you saw that made you want to be in the entertainment industry? Honestly, I don't remember when I didn't want to be in it. <laughs> I mean, part of it is television was my best babysitter. I watched everything and was interested in everything and, and the people who were there. And uh, I just I just loved it. Um, so didn't feel for me like a big decision to like pack up and come out. I, that was what I wanted to do. But I think to be fair, I wasn't totally sure what that would look like as far as a, a career. You know, I, I didn't know what a path to being a producer was. I didn't know if while I was there, you know, I would be discovered and so, you know, so my life could take some other magical path. But I knew I wanted to be in it. Yeah, and then I think once you know you want to be in it, and I'll speak for me, once you know you want to be in this, you almost don't want to be in anything else. Mm -hmm. And that's when you know through the ups, the downs, the, the, the highs, the lows, the joys, the chaos, you love this. And there's something about this, when, especially when it's done well. Like we've worked on a couple of shows, both of us, where things were done really well. Those experiences are like, this is as good as it gets in a lot of ways when it's done right. Oh, yeah. I mean, you spend uh, years trying to recreate those experiences. I also feel like there's a ordered chaos that really suits my personality. You know, I have lots of friends, you know, who when they're asking me about about uh, what I do and they're like, well, so like, what's what's normal? Like you walk in, you walk in the door on Monday and what happens? And and I can honestly say, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know, but that's fine. You know, that just means I have to pivot. As a producer, I used to always say, uh, very few times do people come to my door to say, everything's okay. <laughs> right. It's, usually, it's people all day coming in saying, oh my, oh, oh we have a problem. <laughs> the fire over here, there's a fire over there. And, and, and you, know, you have to sort of decide whether not having film is the same as not having croissants, but not uh, diminishing people's work. And, you know, and, and while you make plans all the time, you know, you need lots of great plans. The best plan has to be changeable. Yeah, I think your flexibility is one of those things that always has stood out to me is to be flexible, to know when to be strong, but to also kind of stay malleable and positive while doing it. That's a real skill is to be able to do all those things all at once. And I think that's what good leaders really can do. Is that you can't make other people panic when they go no. with you panic. Panic is contagious. So strong, calm, and kind, I think, are good tent poles. Um, and and quite frankly, people <laughs> when people smell panic, then you don't <laughs> then you don't get everybody rowing in the same direction. You know, I, there I, there have been 
times, I'm sure plenty of times in my career where the decision I made may not have been the best decision or the most uh, most efficient or, or prudent or something, but what I needed in that moment was a decision to be made and for everybody to be on board with executing that. Sometimes you have time to explore all the options and sometimes you need to just say, this is what we're going to do. We're going. Yeah, we're going. We're taking the hill. But to be decisive and do it and still to be able to be kind, I think what you said is, you know, those are great tent poles. That, that would be a message I would love for people to hear is do it this way. Do it bold. Do it strong. Do it kind. Yeah. I think yeah. that's awesome. That's a good way to go. What was your first job in the industry? You said you were a PA. What did you, what did you start on? My first job was with Gary David Goldberg, who was an amazing uh, uh, producer, creator. He, he created Tommy Ties, he, and he was a great mentor. And uh, and he was <laughs> he was an eight hundred pound gorilla with a heart of gold, you know. So he could scare people and you know and spread love at the same time. When I, when I first came out, I interned three days a week on Entertainment Tonight and two days a week uh, on uh, Family Ties. And then they launched a show called. Day by Day at that time, which was Julie Louis and Drex's first show, I think. Then when I came back uh, after graduating, ran around town getting, trying to get a job, Gary hired me back, and so I worked in his office. And, and that's whose coffee I perfected. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say was the first big project you worked on where you had a bigger role? We had just finished, I think, Brooklyn Bridge with Gary, and it was an incredibly personal project to me. I'm going to take some time down. And the, and the job I got right after that was on a show. It was a show about a car called Viper. Um, the, the Dodge Viper had just come back, and there was a show that took place slightly in the future, and the car morphed. It was kind of like a Batmobile. But the reason that I think that show was so important for me as, as, a, producer, as a producer growing up is because I ran post. This is, you have to remember, this is, I don't know, 20-something years ago. Special effects were not, you know, at the touch of a button on somebody's laptop. You know, so um, the VFX department that was part of Post, and then a big part of the show sort of became the tail wagging the dog. So we had, a, we had you know, an executive producer on our side that was in charge of all of that, whom I worked for. So in designing that department and working with super talented people, and in trying to design a workflow for getting those effects done and, you know, and they shot nights and I'd, I'd be getting calls at crazy hours in the morning and then getting up at, 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 in the wee hours to go make sure that the effects were getting transferred. We had to do them in like three different colors because it was a lot. There was a lot of responsibility and a lot to do and also working closely with the editors. And I, I feel like it gave me a lot of confidence, you know, just like, is like oh okay that was a lot but we we got it done and we 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 delivered and we figured stuff out along the way you know uh, something we talked a lot about in this past year is that feeling about when you're you know building the airplane while you're flying it you know you gotta you gotta just keep going i think i got a lot out of that experience jumping forward spin city right mm -hmm. which was such a huge show but it was a huge show for lots of reasons, right? Because yeah. you had Michael J. Fox coming back. You had, he was dealing and starting to deal with, with the Parkinson's diagnosis, yeah. all those kind of things. 
And it was a really good comedy that was a really complex comedy that also had some political tones and a lot of layers to it behind the scenes. Yeah, that show was, I mean, incredibly important to me for a lot of reasons. I mean, you know, I went to New York. I had not been in New York before. So working in New York was amazing and getting to know that city. Um, you know, personally, I met, uh, I, I met my future husband during that time when I was, when I was in New York as a show. There weren't any other multicams shooting at the time, like they had done the Cosby show at another facility. So we had to train a camera department. We had people come out from LA, you know, and sort of did multicam boot camp, uh, as well as, you know, we had shot the pilot in LA, you know, so that set had to be shipped out. The producer who did the pilot, um, Linda Niebuhr, who I worked with a lot, she did an amazing job of like, sort of moving the circus, you know, <laughs> to New York. And then she, she stepped away. We were on a stage that had not been a stage. So I saw them transform this sort of warehouse space on a pier out in Chelsea. And at this time, you know, those of you who know New York, I mean, Chelsea is like a very nice, lovely enclave of the city. You know, the Chelsea Pier is a, a tourist attraction. At the time that we were there, you had to tell the cabbie how to get there. Like they, they're like and, the people, people and, and then they took you and went, "Are you sure? <laughs> are you sure that you, are are you good? I'm gonna let you out here. Are you okay? I'm gonna leave you here. So <laughs> you better be sure. And yes, I, and I and I got to work really closely with uh, with Michael J. Fox and and New York was just it was different from LA. The Teamsters were definitely different. In LA. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> just the whole workflow of it. So yes, it's different, right? Like it's got a different energy. Yeah, and and it wasn't without its clashes. You know, there was. I also had uh, some challenges with strong. I would not include kind or calm. <laughs> we built that show and built a a, a strong knit family, and it was incredibly shaping. Now, what about? What would be the next big project for you in your career? Would it be Scrubs? Oh, yes, it's definitely Scrubs. Bill Lawrence was a uh, co-creator with Gary Goldberg on Spin City. Bill and I became very close. You know, we, we did a lot of stuff in the city that young people do when they get to the city. But also, we stand by the craft service table and talk about, you know, you know, if you, you know, he'd say, you know, if I get a show, will you produce it? And I was like, you know, of course, like that was sort of our our fun talk over, you know, cucumbers and pretzels. And that's exactly what happened. He, he uh, after he left the show, he uh, created Scrubs and called me up and said, uh, you know, it's happening. I, I created the show. Do you want to come out? And that, that's what took me from New York to back to L.A. Now, I heard a story, and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh -huh. that Bill Lawrence credits the friendship uh, between Dorian and Turk on Scrubs, between Zach Braff and Donald Frazier. That's partially your friendship? That that you guys, that relationship kind of inspired some of that? Not exact, but like no, your not exactly. friendship. Definitely, definitely, I mean, we were, we were the Turk and JD of, of that set. Okay. Um, I didn't, I didn't uh, pick Bill up. <laughs> <laughs> in Scream Eagle, 
uh, at least not as often as uh, Donald did for uh, for Zach. We used to we used to say we were each other's longest lasting or most successful adult relationship because we had we had known each other longer than both of each of us had been married. Uh, we sp probably spent more time together. You know, <laughs> yeah. I certainly think we could uh, read each other pretty well. Yeah, I thought yeah. that was amazing. And Scrubs is one of those shows. Um, I was uniquely aware of Scrubs because of Sarah Chalk. And so, oh, yeah. yeah, and so it's very interesting for me to hear stories about the production of that show because there was a lot of fun that happened on that show. And it's a place where a lot of people who work there, especially people who were early in their career, really credit for kind of setting a tone for them. Scrubs was amazing. I mean, we had a great time. We were sort of the little engine that could, you know, like we, we produced it in this abandoned hospital in, in the valley you know, that nobody wanted to visit. So, so we kind of got to do our own thing. The other thing is it was just sort of part of the, I think the lightning in the bottle for that show was everybody was growing up in some way, you know, I mean, I mean, Sarah had been on Roseanne, but Zach had never had a series that, uh, that, that team that came together, it being the first show, like, I think there was something like 43 babies. Like, you know, I still, when I still, I talk to the crew and the cast, you know, and I see these kids growing up in the, in season three, I think there was like, you know, 15 new cars, you know, people's getting their first new car. Sarah got her first home car. She had driven down in her parents' truck. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, new homes, first time home ownership and, and sort of what was built around that. You know, so from a community standpoint, it was amazing that we were all having these first together and, and learning and growing up and, and getting to make a show at the same time. And Bill was having a lot of fun with the characters and I think, you know, for a single camera comedy at the time, breaking a lot of new ground. I mean, he used to joke about it being cartoon because you know we because of the fantasy elements you know we were the next best thing to simpsons in you know in, in real in live action right so. and, and doing something people really hadn't done you you watch that show and you you didn't know where it was going to go and there kind of weren't any parameters on what was off the table which was a really exciting thing i mean it's something unique when you can do a show and and there's that kind of unknown quality to it but still some consistency for the audience where they feel safe going with you on the journey. Yeah. And, and, you know, from a creative in production standpoint, I mean, like this is a lot where I feel like the collaboration was so important because you could be reading a script and, you know, in one minute there's a regular scene going on and then, uh, and then he breaks up Turk's hand and it's chocolate and he's eating it or he's riding a scooter to work and, you know, the scooter goes into a giant puddle. And he disappears for a minute, comes up in a degree to which they would want to tell stories and, and, and veer off into fantasy world or, or just something bizarre because it was, it was funny. From a production standpoint, you know, oftentimes the question would become, well, you know, we can't do all of this, but what's the most important joke? You know, what's, or what is the feeling that you think this joke evokes? Because maybe together we can figure out a way to either give that same feeling or maybe we're going to trim away some things, you know, in order to preserve the thing that you really want creatively. And we, that, that conversation is one that I want to be in, you know, 
because I think that is, you know, a way to get the better thing. And sometimes, and quite honestly, you know, I think that some writers would even tell you that sometimes that, that challenge makes them come up with a more clever way to tell a joke or something. I mean, sometimes not, sometimes it's needed. But I do think sometimes when every whim is indulged on a creative level, you don't get the, the best result. Yeah, I think from a creative standpoint as a writer, sometimes when somebody says, okay, I love what you're going for, but we can't do that. What else could we do or how else could we express this idea? Sometimes you're forced into a thinking that you may not have initially wanted, but that's where some of the magic comes out of, you know, and, and to give it in an example that maybe people can see more readily is from an acting standpoint, sometimes when you get to go off script and ad lib, it turns into some of the best stuff. The other thing that can happen is sometimes when you go and interact with somebody, if they can't keep a straight face or you're playing, sometimes that joy maybe wasn't the original intent of the scene. Maybe you're mm -hmm. supposed to be frustrated or sarcastic, but with the other person, you are frustrated and sarcastic, but sometimes with a friend, it becomes funny in real life. Next yeah. thing you know, that's a great moment that you're so happy you have, but it's because you couldn't get it quite the way you wanted the special prop that you wanted that would have cost thirty or $40,000 is not available. So what are you going right. to do? And you come up with a really ingenious or simple way that's more relatable for people. Yeah. And I think 100%. it's great. The, the collaborative part of that is saying, you know, and for you, a lot of times you had to be that person of saying, I like this, but what if we, how can we play with that? And how can we do a different, you know, a different way of getting there? Yeah. You know, I think that, too many people grow up in the business thinking that the, that the person who says that is an opponent. Right. And not a, and not a collaborator, you know? Um, yeah. And I think that's a big thing. I, I, I hope people get that, especially young writers or producers coming up who want to do this seriously, is when you take that note, don't take it as, it's not a punch in the face. It's not an assault on what you wrote. Right. It really is either constructive note or realistic note or a time period note, right? Like sometimes we just don't have time to make that thing happen, right. but you can still get there if we collaborate. Now, if you fight and both people dig in their heels, which we've all seen and you know, you become like two bulls hitting each other with their horns. Yeah. Nobody wins really. Somewhere along the line when we were at, uh, at Scrubs, I remember someone on the team saying to me, you know, if, if this is your point, and this is my point, you know, how do you make me get your point? So I start, you know, pushing my hand against his. And he said, he said, no, the way for me to get your point is to do this. Oh, brilliant. Uh, like, it just sticks with me as a, you know, as a way in. Like, sometimes when you're finding yourself pushing against somebody, you're not listening. You know, you're not really listening because you're very concerned about, I'm getting no point, but if you can let that go for a minute, sometimes you can get to a better place. Uh, and then the other thing that somebody said to me that is not nearly as uh, poetic, <laughs> just said, uh, you know, sometimes you're not writing till it's perfect, you're writing till Friday. So let's just, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we got a show to make. Yeah, I, and I think that's a thing too. I mean, we have to get a show done on time. And sometimes, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, right? Like you have to figure out a way to make this happen and it's got to happen by the time in order for us to get done. So make it happen. Let's try something new. 
Yeah. yeah. From there, you know, one of the, the projects I wanted to ask you about was Cougar Town because it has a totally different kind of feel to it. Mm-hmm. And that's another big project for you. And that project, correct me if I'm wrong, you started moving a little more towards more, even more creative stuff, right? Yes. Well, at that point, you know, Cougar Town was another Bill Lawrence project. We had incredible shorthand, you know, and it was very easy and organic, you know, way of working. We were doing that. We had done, we were doing pilots together. It was really one company. Honestly, Cougar Town didn't feel hugely different. I mean, it was a diff, what was different about it was where the cast was. And you know this from experience, like, you know, Scrubs felt like everybody was, uh, coming of age, right? Of age, exactly. Yeah. You know, Courtney Cox had already been on the biggest show on the planet. Krista Miller had been on another gigantic show, Drew Carey, as well as having been a model, and she was, she happened to be married to Bill. Um, Busy Phillips had been on uh, Dawson's Creek. So like, mm-hmm. there are three top women on the show came with, I think, a level of expectation, you know, and experience, you know, that just changed the, the DNA of, of making that show. And that's not a judgment of good or bad. It's just, it's just. It's a reality. I, and that's yeah. each show takes its own tone. Yes. There's something, there's something special about rising up like Scrubs, where it's a lot of people who are newer or younger and are rising to the occasion and are coming into their own. Right. And then in Cougar Town, you're dealing with a group of veterans who have a lot of experience who just bring a different energy. This is, is for some, it's the next big moment for others it's a breakout in a new direction and, and but it's a more mature experienced group right and and honestly like like i would i could point to grace and frankie as well grace and frankie i'm working with legends there and you know once again what they bring in what they expect is different and it changes the alchemy of the show in that we had certain people on staff like you know the DP who had done, he'd come off a show, but he'd also done a lot of features. The prop master was, I think the first woman in, in the uh, prop union, I think Jane and Lily felt like, you know, this is the, you know, this is somebody who we want on the, on the show. Marta Kaufman, who had produced Friends. I mean, it's it, along, the, along everyone's journey in this business, depending on how much say they have, there's people that they want to bring to the park, you know? And when you work with movie legends, some of those people are big people, which, you know, don't normally do TV. So that, that comes at a cost and that a, uh, expectations have to be managed about what's doable. And, you know, and there's a learning curve. I mean, whenever we go from one area, like I'll tell you, I, I've worked across the board on a lot of stuff. When you go from multi-cam to single cam, there's a difference. And people mm-hmm. who do a lot of one or the other, the flow is different. And then from one place to another and then size and scope. And for some people, especially people who go from features to television, there's a transition of how things have to get done in an order in order to get things done effectively. And there's a learning curve there. Even if you're great at what you've done in one side or the other, and that's not a knock on anybody, it's a reality that it yeah. takes time. And, you know, so it's great because you get great people, 
but even they're learning at that stage in their career in bits and pieces. Yep. Now you directed uh, on Grace and Frankie, right? Yes, I actually directed on all those shows. I directed on Scrubs, Cougar Town, and Grace and Frankie. Grace and Frankie, I think maybe a little bit more, and it was, again, you know, it's a, uh, it's a, it, for me, it was, an, it was an awesome experience, also completely, incredibly intimidating. I tell people all the time, like, you know, you know, I could dine out on a month for, from a, getting a compliment from Jane Fonda. I could also, like, become suicidal if she, she's like, that's a terrible note. I mean, <laughs> terrible yeah, and you have to go give notes. <laughs> yeah, that was, I don't know what I was thinking. I should, I should not have gotten out of bed this morning. <laughs> Failure. I don't know what I'm. I don't know what I'm doing. Jane, Lily, and Sam and Martin really—they're also spectacularly kind yeah. and and knowledgeable about the business. I mean, they—they've they, had the cameras on them forever, so nothing but respect. Okay, now working on Mixish. Yes. Which is such a. For me, it's a great show um, it, because there's dynamics there that I always, you know, we've talked. I, that's my area, a show that really touches on stuff, but also deals with a very just natural progression. It's going back in time a little compared to Blackish from which it came from. Mm -hmm. But it really is cutting edge dealing with what society really looks like and interracial marriage biracial kids, uh, family dynamics. I mean, all of these things are really, really timely. And unfortunately, not as prevalent on television and in production as it really is in society yet. Right. Kenya was fond of saying when, when the show was coming into existence that this was, you know, the, the, the superpower of the show is, is being able to really look at things about today but through this retrospective lens, sometimes that makes it easier to tell stories. I mean, you know, we did a great, with the, Peter Saji wrote a story about environmentalism, you know, that touched, you know, that was really about global warming, but, you know, told as a story about the ozone layer, which is what was going on in the 80s, talking a lot about uh, race and privilege and, and, and the expected roles of, uh, you know, the, 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 you know, our mother is a working mother and our dad is a stay-at-home dad. Yeah, it's it's fun to play with topics. I think the writers did a really good job of having some fun talking about contemporary topics through that lens of the 80s. And and in the pilot, they really do get out that information very quickly about uh, having uh, mixed families, and the show was mixed-ish, went from being illegal to being a gigantic part of uh, global society. Right. What is one of the strangest things you've seen on set over the years? We don't have to use any names. We don't have to get anybody in trouble. What's something strange where you're just like, especially as a producer, because people are running the office saying, I don't know what to do. <laughs> oh, man. Um, funny things that happen, like, you know, we were doing a, a beach shoot where we had to go out to a, a, a little buoy and, and um, and to see, uh, you know, the jet ski take off and the, the makeup girl get launched off of the back of a, of a, a ski dude. And the person driving, not to realize it until like they were way out at the, at the buoy and have to come back and, and get. A couple of things that were 
fun or when we were doing Undateable as a live show, it was great to see sort of the, the chaos of five minutes. Like, you know, you think of five minutes as a little bit of time in regular production, but when you're live, suddenly five minutes is like, okay, we have, oh, we have five minutes? You know, we can do this thing and you see, you know, singers and actors like in the, in the, in the last moments before they just like running across the stage, you know, and then regaining the composure, you know, to, to yes, exactly. Live production, you know, I did a live talk show for like a year and a half. And just to watch people and watch people count you in from commercials, mm-hmm. everybody's like, oh, yeah, I'm fine. Oh, wait, I forgot. And then they like run around and go crazy and then they come back and then everything's like, oh, it's the end of the world. Like, no, yeah. it's okay. It's okay. What's a moment or two that you couldn't wait to come home and tell your loved ones about? Scrubs. There was a moment when Dick Van Dyke was uh, guest starring on the show, and Donald Faison, who had a guitar, told him that um, when he was a child, that his mother used to sing Hushabye Mountain, which is a song in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And Dick Van Dyke you know, took the guitar and sang the song, and the set came to a halt, and everybody just enjoyed that, enjoyed that moment, yeah. you know? I had something. I had something similar happen on uh, on a Grace and Frankie. I was directing, and, and Peter Gallagher was there, and, and uh, Jane and, and Martin. I can't call her name right now. She played the Goodbye Girl, um, Marsha Mason. You know, all of whom have been at this for a while and done Broadway. And Peter's a great storyteller, and starts talking about a show he was in. And it was night, and we were trying to get this shot. They didn't go back to their shows. They all broke into song around this table. And in this case, I was directing. So I was like, I want to stay here and watch, but I have to go have this other scene. You know, but it was, uh, it was just cool. I think the, most of the time, the things that, I'm, that I get excited about that are just like cool things. Like, you know, at the end of the day, when you get to work with people who helped, you know, shape your childhood or at least your pop knowledge um, or classic movie knowledge are there you know across the table or standing on set with you and you um, um, an organic moment happens and you get to share that it's cool you almost pinch yourself afterwards right you just enjoy the moment and then after somebody walks away you think to yourself that moment like you right. almost can't explain it to people i think sometimes I mean, I, growing up, we had so many people on the show. I mean, from Tony Curtis and Bob Hope. And like, I mean, we just, names, right? You just, you could drop names all day, you know, and people were just like, oh, thanks a lot. But it's not, it's not the name that gets you. It's the moment that reminds you of something either from your childhood or from an experience or a magic moment that you've seen that now you're having your own private magic moment. Yeah. Okay, can I ask you about development, right? Because now you're, you're putting projects together. And that's a part of this business. Yeah, right? Uh, <laughs> me too. So I think we all, and that's something we all have to will these projects into being is, is the way I always look at it is. But when you're developing a project, there's a lot of pieces to it. So maybe for people outside, how does development start in a general sense? Well, I think it's a couple of different things. You know, 
I am a non-writing producer. So for me, um, <clears throat> like Mixed Dish was really out of an idea that I had and presented to Kenya. And then, you know, you know, then we talked about appropriate writers and, you know, he ran with it. And he's, of course, you know, incredibly powerful producer. And so in that case, you know, it was an idea and it was really about, idea was developing, you know, in the same way that you said, everybody's felt like an outsider. You know, I said, I, I think I, I, I've been that awkward, you know, uh, 12 year old girl, you know, trying to find her, her way, you know, and, and not sure about the world around, you know, like for me being a, a kid from the Midwest and we're the only black family in the neighborhood and feeling like, you know, there might be some coming out in my future and how is that all working? All of that sort of was inspirational to me about a, a Wonder Years type story. And then I had a conversation with Kenya about, you know, the Chase's character that he had already created was such a great way in to tell a story like that. And Peter Saji, who's biracial and executive producer on the show, you know, had a lot of story, a lot of that authentic voice to put into the story. Other things, oftentimes, developments originating with the writer, trying to put out a script or an outline and, and build up what, what they think the story is. So for me, it's really the same process. I'm just uh, either, some writers are bringing me ideas. Sometimes it's an idea that I feel like uh, is close, but you know needs that other authentic voice and needs somebody to help write uh, a, treat, a treatment and an outline. What it would be. Sometimes the idea I think uh, needs something that we were just working on a little bit earlier is uh, there's somebody who has such an authentic story and such a great voice, but you know there's a gap. They need a partner. They need the right writer. Um, to partner with them to help bring it to a place that's producible and realistic. And, and so that's like, that's happening. I'm working with a, a, a comedian who's run shows before and we're pairing her with a drama writer. You know, we've got some of the authentic story to be told. Another one I think needs an actor attached because we've got the story and we have the voice but I think we need uh, a way for somebody to, to, to attach a to connect, face. Connect a face, connect a B. And it's interesting. They all get kind of developed slightly different. Yes. You know, and, and I know for me, from a writing standpoint, the thing is you can't be blocked or closed to what may be the best path for a project because they all take different shapes. Yeah. You know, sometimes you need that lead face or two maybe actors that have the right dynamic together that make it easy for people to relate or picture. Yep. Sometimes you need, you know, maybe you're a good writer or you have a good idea, but you need a showrunner, someone with experience who has already demonstrated their ability to deliver and yep. has an ability to connect with this area, right? Whether it be comedy or drama, right? And then for other people, Maybe you're the showrunner, but you need more authentic voice to this particular project. And so yeah. you could be so a there's writer. Not, in that there's, not, there's not really a wrong way. It really is trying to, to recognize that each, you know, it's back to parenting. You know, every, every child doesn't need the same thing. They just need the, the, the right thing for them. Right. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it.
Now, what do you look for in a project? What's the thing as the executive producer now? What's mm -hmm. the thing that lights you up that makes you say, yeah, I, I want to be a part of that? Well, I think that mainly what I'm finding is, you know, how do I connect to it? Like, what is, why is the story, why do I think the story is important to be told? And that's what um, makes it interesting for me and I think would, would make me want to go the extra mile and, you know, put my, my heart and soul and whatever I have to risk into it. And that varies, you know. I think that I'm, if I think about the things that are on the slate right now, you know, one of them uh, I connect to very much because it's about different ways of building a family. My two children are adopted, and, you know, it's the best thing that ever happened to us, and I, I couldn't be happier. And, you know, and how that could have happened differently sort of gets touched on in, in this one story. One is uh, about a strong black woman who sort of cut her own path, you know, when, uh, when not a lot of women were doing that. And I think part of what I relate to on that one is, you know, when I first became a producer, you know, I was the only, you know, I'd go to these big table meetings at the network and it was, I was raising the note wheel. I mean, there was, no, there was no other people of color in there. Well, and, and that's that one of those things too. I mean, you know, I, I should ask you this question too, is I think people from outside the business also want to know, but even people who are early in the business want to know, how do you bridge that gap when you walk into a room and you don't have perceivably the same background or the same story coming up? The truth is we all have things like we touched on earlier where we come together and we have shared experience, but diversity hasn't been as it has it has a lot i mean how do i say this i think the paradigm is shifting right so uh, even that there's a conversation about uh diversity and inclusion that is meaningful going on right now the idea that that voice and or authentic point of view is validated and appreciated that has changed Right. You know, I feel like when I first got into the business, I worried a lot about being perceived as different, you know, and it seemed more important to try and assimilate and like maybe dull those edges, you know, so that I could, you know, find my way in the traditional way. So young people who you know, who are black and Latina and just whatever authenticity you're bringing to the table to feel like their power is in that authentic voice is completely different, you know, because it changes, it changes when you would insert yourself into the conversation. I can't tell you the number of times when, if you're the, if the, if you're the only woman in the room and someone brings up, you know, for lack of a better example, you know, the black joke, and then everybody in the room looks at you, like, I, is that I, okay? And then, you know, so now I am part spokesman, right, for everybody. And I'm also acutely aware at that time that if I'm the low man on the totem pole, you know, and I shit on this thing, where's that going to, where, where will I be tomorrow? Right. You know, survival. And that's not, uh, you know, so. It's not the most empowering or healthy way to go about 
and it's also not the healthiest way to, to design a project. It's not the yeah. best collaborative approach. I also think there's something about whatever group that you're in where someone says, okay, well, what about this? And everybody turns and looks at you. And all of a sudden you're like, okay, that's suddenly now how you're going to see me or identify me in this scenario. Right. right? So like, that means that, uh, that uh, all of my power or val validity is tied to that. So right. Does that mean my, you know, that my ideas are less valuable when, when the joke isn't right. about the, you know. Yeah, and that's, and that's hard. That's where I think inclusion is so important. I think, um, and I, I'm just a big proponent of diversity across the board from the standpoint of even orientation, lifestyle, life experience, all of these things. If you want to present your product to the world, we can't be myopic. Yeah. Right? Because, and, and that's, I think that's the beauty of where the business is headed is we are a lot more open-minded in, in most settings and we're starting to empower all of these voices that have been valid for far too long that didn't get the opportunity or the access. Right. And I think that's a great thing because it, it gives you stories that will show, share and inspire and empower so many people across multiple cultures, across everything. And I think it, it includes and in, increases our culture, particularly around the world, but in this country where we are so diverse, to take those stories, that's what empowers the country as a whole. And I think- but we, That's what we, if, if pop culture is what we export, that should be part of what we're exporting. But I think it's an advantage personally. Would you say it's an advantage, you know, not to get too political, but our, you know, the last administration used to always say that the cabinet should look like this country. I always think that, you know, your production team and your writer's room and your executive should look like your country or the people that you're trying to present. If we're mm -hmm. presenting something to a whole country, which is especially at the network level that we're doing, yeah. then in order to reach people and connect with people in an authentic way, we have to have people who can tell the stories who have some of that experience and can share. Yeah. And, you know, this goes back to the thing about, when everybody looks at you and what it's like nobody wants to be the spokesperson for any part of their life because they if you're knowledgeable you realize i don't have the answers to every portion of this exactly we're not all the same and it doesn't matter what group right like i mean two siblings you can be identical twins you don't look at the world exactly the same your whole life's not the same and going back to the parenting example I have multiple kids. You have multiple kids. They're not the same, right? No. And you you try to do the rules and the main portions of things. Standards have to be the same as a family or whatever, but they're not the same, and you can't have it be exactly the same because this doesn't work that way. Yeah. And projects are no different. Yeah, it's true. I have my kind of final run of questions. So you ready? Yep. All right. What's the first thing you look at on a call sheet, Randall? My name. <laughs> and the call time. Okay. What's the last thing you want to see on a call sheet? Ooh, I, I don't like to see the call be too late. Okay. Then it, especially on a Friday. Then it turns into what people call Friday. Yeah. Nobody likes Fratterdays. No. All right. What's your favorite thing to see at craft service? Um... <laughs> Last year it was ramen. 
Okay. Uh, you know, craft service is going to be all different. Of course, there, it, 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 <laughs> there are very few things I'm, I'm happy to see at craft service. Um, oh, and I like those little peanut butter filled pretzels. Okay, now, what do you hate to see at craft services? Well, I, I'm very, it's usually very specific. Like, I love, um, especially if it's a little chilly out, I love soup day. Okay. But I don't like, I don't like the matzo ball soup that they bring at craft service because the matzo balls are too hard. So yep. I end up skimming the broth out and <laughs> maybe mixing it with a split pea or something. So, so it's usually like a version of something that's there. Okay. How do you define success? I would define success. In a project, I would say success for me is a having a good collaborator in a project that you care about, you know, in the grander scheme of things, you know, sort of the obvious things about being able to have a career and um, see my family healthy and happy. All right, Randall, how do you measure up to your definition of success? I'm doing all right. I think so. I think you're doing awesome. I, I watch how you grow and move through things. I think you said certain things earlier about strong, calm, kind. And you talked about really kind of being focused about what you do and going after what you want, but, but knowing how to translate for people and communicate. And I think you do those things at a level that is really special to me. And it's one of those things, it's one of the pieces of you that I try to steal and try to learn from. Um, thank you for saying that. That's uh, very kind and very inspiring and humbling. Uh, you know, you make it easy. I appreciate that. All right, what's the one thing you want on every set? Uh, can it be an emotional thing? I, oh, I, yeah, yeah. Can be I anything I, you want. I, I, I want inspiration, and passion are sisters in my mind. You know, uh, and I love it. I love it when a department head comes to me and says, you know, I saw, like, in Scrubs, I remember somebody saying, you know, this, this character that they created, you know, seems like they're sort of got this uh, country vibe, like, you know, can I please do a mullet? It was like, oh, my God, I love you. I love that you read it and you thought of that. I love it when, you know, the DP is like, you know, this feels like a, a little bit more moody than normal, you know, do you mind if I, you know, give it this extra oomph, you know, or, or I think we could tell that piece of the story by saying, I just, I get excited when people are excited about the work. Yeah, me too. I come to work every day loving it and excited and, and looking for the collaboration, looking for the joy and the next experience because every day is different. It's one of the things I love about this. Yeah. So, you know, inspiration and passion, you know, I think you should come every day and something should inspire you and you should try to inspire someone else with your work and what you're doing and how you raise your level. And everybody should come with a passion that is um, an enthusiasm that borders on obsession. Yes. And you'll get something special. First thing that you wish you could eliminate from a set? Um, usually something political. Something political or 
what I perceive to be petty. Yeah. Yeah. Anything that gets in the way of, of being cohesive and collaborating and working, right? Yeah. All right. What's the best gift you've gotten from working on a project? It was a bicycle. Oh. I loved my on scrubs. Yeah. And you know what? Part of, part of the reason that I loved it is that everybody on the crew got bikes that day and then we went on a ride together. Like we, we, we rode around the neighborhood, a big parade, and we did that at lunch for about a month. It's awesome. Again, the unity, right? Like the, yeah. the collaborative community. Yes. I think that's that for me, if I could say two things I try to build and that I want to build in projects, I would say it's community and inclusion. Okay. And it's not always the same people, you know? Right. You're casting behind the scenes as much as you're casting in front of the scenes. And you can improve on it. Like, I will say, it, it, from a diversity standpoint, just from experience base, like, working in the ish world, I've discovered, you know, new people and was so happy to include them in the, you know, on the call sheet. Some, having some people that you know that, you can relate to, but meeting all these new people from project to project and watching new amazing people come into your world. And, you know, I joke, I tell people, I've been keeping a cast and crew list since 1988 when I was six years old, circling people's names and keeping track of uh, who I thought worked really hard and did really yeah. well and came with passion and inspiration. So I've been keeping track that. of, you know, and, and I'm open to new people all the time. Yeah, I keep, I, I keep a hits list too. How do you want the people who work with you to remember you? I would hope that they'll remember me as uh, strong, calm, and kind, and fair, and a good collaborator. I want them to. I want them to feel like and know that uh, you know that I was committed to collaborating with them to make the best thing we could. I love that, man. I love that. What is the legacy that you want your loved ones to take from your life? Um, well, I'm a, I, I always like to say that uh, indecision is the mother of frustration, you know? So I would like for uh, my family to, to move through life inspired to do things their way, but, in, but to make those choices that keep them moving forward and not get stuck in uh, indecisiveness for reasons about presentation as opposed to about what is important to their wholeness. Thank you. Because that's brilliant advice. Really brilliant advice. So Randall Winston, a creative force, Thank you for coming on Fish's Call Sheet, and thank you for being an amazing collaborator, for being strong, calm, kind, and fun and entertaining and a joy to share time with. Thank you so much. That was, uh, that was a lot of fun, and um, I'll carry that with me. It's going to be a good day. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast, and I can't wait to share more.